Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's find out how things are standing now. In Israel, as far as the Israeli Defense Force is concerned, the Israel Defense Force, and how the Israeli military is uh, preparing to do what uh, the country said it's going to do, and that is enter Gaza and finally and forever eliminate the threat posed and the violence delivered by Hamas. We are joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, the spokesperson for the IDF. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for having me. How much can you share with my listeners about Israel's preparedness to enter Gaza and eliminate the Hamas leadership and Hamas itself? At this stage, what I can say is that we've been striking Hamas leadership, infrastructure, and degrading their military capabilities from the air for the better part of two weeks now, ever since the massacre of October the 7th. And uh, we are preparing ourselves. Our troops are around the Gaza Strip. They are combat ready. They have done preparations, final preparations, training, our task in in battle formation. And once the order will be given by the Israeli military cabinet, the IDF will commence. Obviously, there are many considerations before you launch a significant military activity. Uh, those in the physical uh, domain, uh, weather, soil conditions, but also pertaining to the enemy, your own readiness, and then political and diplomatic considerations. But when the conditions are right, the IDF will uh, conduct major operations, and we will uproot Hamas. We will rid Hamas. We will rid Gaza from uh, uh, this horrible terrorist organization, this ISIS-style organization that has been allowed to fester there for all too long. Hopefully, it will end with a much better situation for Israel and for Palestinians living in Gaza. I'm just thinking about the IDF as an extremely professional military organization. You've proven that repeatedly. Uh, When when Israel was attacked in uh, 1973, I was around for that. Um, but there has to be a personal component for each and every member of the IDF. When, when, uh, when, when, when they look at what happened on October the 7th, and I've talked to a number of people, Lieutenant Colonel, who've said, look, there isn't anybody in Israel who wasn't in some way personally affected by that attack on October the 7th. There has to be a personal com- component, yes? Yes, there is. And, you know, beyond the personal, which you are correct, it touches everybody. I have... Uh, close friends from the military who are no longer with us, uh, who were killed while fighting. I have uh, uh, family members of a friend. One of them is now held hostage in Gaza. And my story is similar to those of many other Israelis. But beyond that, you know, it's also the issue of how could this have happened and how can we prevent it from happening again? There's a lot of reckoning that will be done in Israeli society, in the IDF and the entire defense establishment. Uh, you know, we, we cannot allow for a situation like this to happen, for such an atrocity uh, uh, to be conducted against our civilians and for the perpetrator of those atrocities of murder, rape, mutilation of bodies, uh, summoning uh, executions and, of course, taking hostages. We can't allow for such an organization to exist after 
uh, they've done something like that. So there's a very significant military challenge ahead. There's a long way in terms of fighting and then rebuilding, rebuilding our communities, rebuilding the trust between between Israeli citizens and the government and the military. Uh, and it will take time. I am confident that we, the IDF, will uh, investigate ourselves, get to the bottom of what happened uh, on October the 7th, prevent it in the future, and most importantly, uh, create the conditions to facilitate a safe return for Israeli civilians to their homes. Yeah, that's going to be a big challenge. People will be very unsure as they return to their homes after what did happen. And I'm sure that it was a massive surprise, a horrible surprise to Israelis everywhere in the country that Hamas was able to enter Israel as it did. So you've also, the IDF has been in an exchange of fire with Hezbollah in uh, in, uh, in Lebanon to the north. Is a second front of fighting for Israel inevitable once the IDF enters Gaza? A second front that will present you with and confront you with a far better equipped and far larger enemy than Hamas. The IDF fought a, a war with uh, Hezbollah in 2006. Do you see a second front developing? Yeah, your assessment is spot on. Uh, Hezbollah is far more powerful and far more dangerous. They possess nation-state capabilities in terms of quantity and quality of weapons. And to use an American frame, a whole other ballgame. Uh, we understand that. And what we have said to the state of Lebanon, not only to Hezbollah, but to the state of Lebanon, we're asking them, is it really worth it for you, the state of Lebanon, to jeopardize what is left of Lebanese prosperity for the sake of the ISIS of Gaza, Hamas? Is it really worth it? Because that is what Hezbollah is doing. Up until now, the IDF has been in defensive and responding mood, move, uh, mode Sorry, only uh, with regards to Hezbollah. They've been attacking uh, firing dozens of anti-tank missiles at our civilians and troops. They've been sending uh, drones across the border. They've attacked military positions. They've tried to infiltrate. They've basically done almost all of the things that they can within the tactical area of operations. We have responded to those attacks, and we've taken out quite a lot of Hamas operatives. And so far, sadly, with seven Israeli casualties, both military and civilians. It's still maintained at a certain threshold, but I think we are definitely nearing a situation where Lebanon is very close to the brink. Hezbollah is pushing Lebanon towards that brink. We haven't started this. Uh, we are not the aggressors, not in the south and not in the north. But if these two Iranian proxies, Hamas in the south and Hezbollah in the north, will force us to defend ourselves, uh, I think that at the end of it, those who will be really sorry for it will be. Hezbollah, Hamas, their Iranian masters in Tehran, and of course the countries, specifically Lebanon, which host uh, Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. um, the foreign minister of Iran issued a warning to Israel about entering Gaza. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Um, so how concerned are you about that? And what, what level of concern does the IDF have that if Hezbollah becomes involved and, and, and sponsored by, uh, by, by Iran, as is uh, um, Hamas, that other countries in the region will be drawn in 
The IDF is very powerful, but that would be a tremendous strain on your military, would it not? It would indeed be. And, you know, I, can, we, I always try to look at things from my enemy's perspective. I can understand that the Iranians are concerned and that they're signaling very aggressive uh, messaging uh, because they understand that we are going to dismantle one of their proxy organizations. At the end of this war, there will be no more Hamas, and that will be billions and billions of Iranian money, well, dollars actually, but in Iranian money, that will go down the drain uh, because they went uh, one bridge very much too far uh, with the atrocities that they did on uh, October the 7th. Um, I can understand that they are concerned and they are threatening to escalate the situation. Uh, and of course, I would uh, caution uh, otherwise. Uh, Hezbollah is a very powerful enemy, but Hezbollah has its weaknesses. Hezbollah has the local population that they must be held accountable to. Uh, and they also remember what happened in 2006. Now, other countries in the region, their interest in fighting against Israel, uh, I think, are minimal. And I think that the presence, the very rapid and clear presence of U.S. military assets with very strong political backing in the region to full um, combat groups uh, of the U.S. Navy with all of its capabilities to aircraft carriers with interception capabilities and strike capabilities. Uh, those are important, and they're not here uh, to help us deal with Hamas. We'll deal with Hamas and we'll deal with Hezbollah. But that is in order to make sure that all of the other regional players understand that neither Israel nor the U.S. wants this to escalate into a regional war. If it's forced upon us, we will fight and we will win that war as well, as heavy and as gruesome as it will be. But we definitely are not looking for it. We're trying to uh, uh, prevent it from happening. And let's hope that international pressure will be focused on Iran, uh, on the fact that they are the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. They bring nothing but violence, despair, poverty, and devastation wherever they go, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Gaza. Um, and I think that it is time for the world to recognize them for what they are. Lieutenant Colonel Conricus, you, uh, I've watched you uh, on some interviews, and uh, you're not afraid or not shy or not reluctant to call out interviewers who either don't understand or don't want to understand what the reality is. How disappointing is it to you, as, a, as an Israeli, as a Jew, as a member of the military, to see these massive demonstrations in support of Hamas, these massive demonstrations which by extension are support of Iran and all of its terrorist activities and its support of terror? How disappointing is it to you that this country, until today, was not willing to say that the the explosion at the at the hospital in in Gaza was was not uh, caused by Israel. How disappointing are these these circumstances, these situations to you? Let's uh, try that on the positive. I am very. I think it is commendable that there are a lot, most uh, democracies in the world. Their leaders are. Uh, there's a constant uh, uh, flow of leaders of the free world visiting Israel, expressing their unequivocal support of Israel, their support of our right to defend ourselves uh, and to uh, to rid uh, Gaza from this cancer 
that has been festering there for so long. Uh, I am disappointed that uh, so many people that are professional, seasoned journalists get it wrong repeatedly when it comes to uh, using Hamas information and, 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 and giving that or, or attributing that with the uh, veneer of truth. Uh, I think that is very, very uh, dangerous and, uh, in fact, reckless reporting. Uh, the BBC, the New York Times, and many others, I think they were, that was substandard journalistic work, uh, to be frank. And I call on uh, others to do, like the U.S. defense establishment, like the French, like the Italian, and many others have done. They've done their own investigations based on open source and other types of intelligence and come to the conclusion and have been uh, brave enough to say, this is what we think happened. And uh, in this case, we stand by Israel. It's not an automatic, we stand by Israel. But in this case, we've looked at the details, we've looked at the intelligence, and this is what, uh, this is what we assess from a professional point of view. I think that is very important. Uh, because you want to be on the right side of things. You want to be on the right side of history. You do not want to be a supporter of mass murderers, rapists, uh, of the butchers who mutilate bodies and, uh, and abduct babies and women and children and the elderly and hold them as hostage. Those are not the, the, the guys you want to be uh, recorded as supporting, directly or indirectly. Let me say hello to my good friend, Dr. Christian Leprecht. He's back with us today, Queen's University and Royal Military College international security expert, fellow at the NATO College in Rome. And his most recent book is Security, Cooperation, Governance, published by the University of Michigan Press. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for making time available to us spontaneously yesterday when we ran into our scheduling issues. And, and again today, I... I'm so glad to be able to talk to you at a time like this. Thank you so much. Roy, it's always a pleasure, and I cherish the opportunity to delve into subjects in a bit more depth with you than is usually possible um, on radio. Yeah, let's, uh, let, let's, let's, let's just get an overview from you now. Uh, the situation as you see it in the Middle East, the, the, the view from 10,000 feet. Well, I think uh, King Abdullah II of Jordan's um, urgent trip to Berlin speaks for itself, uh, asking the German government to intervene um, in the Middle East as a quasi sort of honest broker uh, to try to get everybody talking to one another when it became clear that most of the countries uh, weren't particularly able or interested in talking to the United States. And uh, um, uh, I, I genuinely think that we are sitting in the Middle East on a powder keg, a structural powder keg in terms of the demographic trends, uh, the economic trends, especially after the pandemic, the political trends where many populations, um, uh, where, where many governments are deeply unpopular with their populations um, and um, and social trends as so to say that uh, um, many groups that don't get along with one another and have long-standing grievances against one another uh, that are exacerbated by sort of recent structural trends and uh, and, and recent aggression in the region. Um, and uh, I, I just think the uh, we make a grave mistake in the West by trying to impl impose Western logic and rationality on the Middle East um, because those simply do not uh, apply in that environment, which is, makes that environment all the more, more, more volatile. So when Israel 
enters Gaza, and they will, possibly today, maybe tomorrow, maybe in a few days, who knows? Uh, they know, we, we don't. But, um, by the way, what's your, what's, your best, what's your best estimate as to when Israel will, in fact, enter Gaza? So, um, Israel has, um, on the one hand, been trying to gain the upper hand in the information environment. I think this is part of the reason why Israel has been buying time here, um, uh, because it was clear that initially Hamas was controlling much of the information environment. So, trying to get a, a balanced and different narrative in the Middle East, that is extremely important because, of course, most populations don't trust uh, Western media, they don't trust local media, and so they align data points with their worldview. The other is that the IDF, although it likes to talk about its 360,000 reservists, uh, the IDF has a very small cadre of, uh, of, of high-end crack troops uh, that can do extremely difficult operations, such as incursions into occupied territories. But reservists and the IDF more broadly is neither trained nor experienced in urban warfare. And so the IDF has been trying to um, train up those 360,000 reserves in, uh, uh, in, in urban warfare, um, which is perhaps the most difficult um, uh, fighting on the ground that you can imagine in the world today. Uh, and so uh, I guess every day counts when we're trying to make sure that you have the skill sets that you need among soldiers that are in many cases rather wary and reticent of the mission that they'll be about to uh, ask to be carried out. Mm -hmm. So, so there is going to be uh, Israel is going to go into Gaza. We know that there will be a response. There will be a global response. Certainly, a regional response. The governments in the in the region are in tenderhooks right now. Then there's the possibility, maybe the likelihood. You would know better which word to use, of a second front opening with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Can the IDF handle that, or is this going to be the situation where Americans? And they've got two carrier task forces in the region where the Americans put their boots on the ground again, and we return to 1980s realities with U.S. Marines in, in Lebanon. So there's two separate issues at play. How effective you can be in large uh, part depends on your intelligence capacity and your visibility of what your adversary is up to. And I think the, the IDF's and Israeli intelligence's um, invincibility that had already been somewhat uh, called into question before this uh, as a result of sort of recent operations has really been shattered um, as a result of the surprise attack by Hamas. So this does not instill confidence that the IDF has any better a picture of what Hezbollah uh, might be up to in uh, Lebanon, let alone in Syria. Um, the other is the that that Israel simply doesn't have enough troops and enough assets to engage in a two-front war, let alone a multi-front war, because we're likely also going to see an uprising in the West Bank. Um, and uh, so uh, that will likely mean in order to uh, uh, that that is the IDF is going to need help, and that help is likely going to come from uh, U.S. Marines and Marine assets. And those of us who are old enough will remember the early 1980s. Uh, of course, that did not go well for the United States. Uh, it did not go well for Israel, and it is at least in part responsible for the chaos that we continue to see and live in Lebanon to this day. Who's really um, exploiting this much to their own satisfaction? Iran, definitely. 
Oh, Iran is definitely uh, laughing all the way here. Um, I mean, look, it's, uh, it got $6 billion out of the United States for five hostages. Uh, and now, um, despite Biden trying to buy uh, stability, it's been able to uh, stoke uh, significant uh, 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 carnage uh, in the Middle East. Um, uh, Iran's objective is to weaken, weaken Israel as a strategic ally, uh, a ground of offensive, would, uh, especially a protracted one, uh, would very much achieve that particular objective. But look, the other people who are laughing uh, are Putin, both because on the one hand, it means the United States uh, is not just distracted in terms of its attention to Ukraine, but we already know, for instance, that uh, the 155 millimeter um, uh, uh, shells that are in such high demand in Ukraine uh, and that are stocked in great number in Israel and where a significant part of that stockpile had already been shipped to Ukraine, those are now going to be not just required in Israel, but that uh, whatever the US uh, produces, much of it is likely going to be diverted to Israel rather than to Ukraine. So that's going to create problems for um Ukrainian artillery in uh, in particular in terms of short shortfalls in ordinance. Uh, but Putin is also um, making the claim of hypocrisy against the West. Um, that is to say that he's accusing Israel of doing in Gaza um, precisely what the West has criticized about Russia doing in Ukraine when it comes to civilian suffering, when it comes to turning off electricity, uh, water, um, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and civilian casualties. But of course, you know, there's no moral equivalence here because uh, in the case of Israel, Israel was heinously uh, attacked, um, uh, women, uh, um, children. Um, and ironically, the people who suffered the most are the people who are the most open to peace with Palestinians because many of the kibbutzes that were attacked are inhabited by people uh, that tend to be more on the left wing of the spectrum and tend to be very favorable to building relationships uh, with uh, with Palestinians. Um, so, but Putin has, very, has been quite successful at drawing this equivalency. Uh, and of course, the other country that is laughing here is uh, is President Xi and China, uh, China, which of course, as a result of its economic uh, weakness in in la in recent years, has been significantly weakened in its uh, strategic reach. Uh, but uh, we're invariantly helping out China here uh, by distracting uh, resources uh, from the United States and allies and partners that could be available to continue to contain China that are now being directed to support Israel and to try to maintain some sense of regional uh, stability in the Middle East. So hence, you're telling us yesterday, this is one of the most dangerous times um, in our lifetimes, and for many people, uh, it is the most dangerous time in their lifetime. Um, I mean, it is certainly um, uh, uh, the most dangerous uh, uh, moment that um, people in the Middle East, uh, and of course, in particular in Israel uh, and in the occupied territories, have lived in recent memory. Um, but it is uh, so dangerous because um, uh, key uh, international adversaries, Iran, Russia, and China all have an interest in uh, stoking chaos, uh, conflict, uh, and carnage um, out of this in the Middle East because they ultimately profit from it. So uh, they will not be helping in terms of achieving uh, stability. Um, and uh, because uh, in the West, uh, ultimately, we have to live with the decisions that Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to make here. Uh, but the West has very little trust in Prime Minister Netanyahu's actions and his own personal political 
uh, and ideological motivations that are at play here um, that uh, uh, may in and of themselves have an interest in perhaps stoking um, uh, some of the uh, the flames that uh, that have already been set alight here. Um, and so uh, there's a high risk here that um, this becomes a much broader conflict um, where the consequences um, are incalculable, both regionally and international, uh, internationally. So let's bring this home. Uh, Canada, we, we, did, we did have a very significant role to play internationally some decades ago. What about today? I'd just like to ask you, and we talked about this a bit yesterday. Canada, do we have a role or are we a bit player these days in 2023 who nobody really pays attention to? And particularly with Mr. Trudeau as prime minister. Um, and, and he did send two ministers to the peace conference that was called in Cairo by the president of Egypt on Friday. So, of course, Canada has role because Canada has interests in the region. Those interests are regional stability and they are containing the conflict so we don't have a broader conflagration, let alone a conflict that could possibly bring the United States into direct conflict with either Russia or China or perhaps both, or having Russia or China exploit sort of weaknesses that arise as a result of the conflict. Uh, the problem is that Canada has uh, little credibility and has so damaged its reputation, in part because it doesn't have any capabilities or assets to contribute. Uh, look no further than the call last Monday uh, between President Biden and the European members of the G7, um, uh, France, Germany, United Kingdom and Italy. Uh, that call left Canada and Japan out. Um, and uh, look, this was portrayed by the prime minister's office as, you know, no big deal. It's the Quinn talking among themselves. But the reality is uh, that the clear signal is that Canada has nothing to contribute. And so if Canada has nothing to contribute, uh, why would we let them in on the conversation? The fact that, you know, in the 1956, we played this significant role in the Middle East, whereas today um, powers in the region uh, are reaching out to Germany and not to Canada as an honest broker uh, shows that that uh, we simply don't have an ability to shape the terrain um, in the Middle East or elsewhere in the world. And that's tragic because Ken, of course, along with Australia, invented the concept of middle power um, after World War II precisely so that countries such as Canada of medium size uh, would have a say in global affairs because they realized that they have interests at stake. And so Canada abdicating its status uh, as a middle power uh, and not being able to shape this very dangerous security environment of the 21st century uh, and essentially leaving it up in particular to the Americans, I think is a very dangerous gamble because if we look back over the last 20 years, I'm not sure we want to leave international security just up to the Americans. I have about 30 seconds. Uh, what's your greatest fear? Realistic fear. Um, my realistic fear is that we're all sleepwalking into um, a global conflict for which we are unprepared um, and uh, which did we, ultimately we did not see coming and that could have been avoided um, had we been a bit more prudent in our actions, had a bit more foresight and actually have the uh, ways, means and ends to ensure that we can shape the environment uh, rather than being bystanders and uh, letting calamity happen. This is a very, very, very delicate, very serious time. And we have the opportunity now to speak uh, with Rabbi Raphael Shore. He is in Jerusalem. He's Israeli-Canadian or Canadian-Israeli, originally from London, Ontario. 
And uh, Rabbi Shore is also one of the most highly respected and acclaimed documentary, film documentary producers and film writers. And he founded Open Door Media, that's O-P-E-N-D-O-R Media, Open Door Media, Media for the Jewish Future, opendoormedia.org. And uh, Rabbi Shore joins us on the Roy Green Show from Jerusalem. Rabbi, thank you so much for the time. Uh, what's the? How would you describe the mood in? I think this is important. How would you describe the mood of people in Israel in Jerusalem two weeks after that horrific attack? Oh, that's a great question, Roy. First of all, thank you very much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Um, the mood here, it is a fascinating thing to observe. We have gone in Israel from a state of complete depression 12 days ago to a state of incredible unity that hasn't been felt in this country for a long, long time because there's been a lot of confusion, just like in America, in Israel also, there was a lot of confusion on how to deal with the terrorists and the problems that we face in security here. And what happened was that the atrocity that the Hamas Palestinians uh, uh, accomplished was so beyond anything that anybody imagined that it unified everybody with a determination that we need to destroy Hamas, that we need to destroy this Palestinian entity whose stated goal is genocide. And as a result, the, 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 the people have come together in a, in, a, in a very, it's almost spiritual, it's almost a spiritual kind of unity and um, a very strong sense of optimism that we are going to now do what we probably should have done quite a long time ago, and that is to try to create security for our, for our citizens and try to deal a mortal blow to one of the strongest forces of evil in the world. Something like um, the mood that I encountered in the United States after 9-11, uh, there was this real sense of unity and determination in the U.S., and it trans. Fired. What's the word? It not, it's not transfixed, but it, uh, it, uh, it, it, it wasn't political. It was more spiritual. You're right. That's the word that probably describes it best. When I was in the U.S. after 9/11, and on the first anniversary of 9/11, there was that same feeling of tremendous loss, uh, coupled with tremendous determination. Um, Rabbi Shore, you have friends who lost a child at that music festival. I shouldn't say lost a child. The child was murdered at that music festival where the Hamas terrorists engaged in an orgy of murders, rapes, and kidnappings. How do we address that? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is not well appreciated in, uh, in the world, in Canada and the United States, is just how small... Israel is, and just how small the Jewish people are. So when this horrific atrocity happened on October 7th, and 1,400 primarily civilians were massacred, tortured, raped, burned to death, it's 
the equivalent of over 30,000 Americans. It's almost, it's 10 times 9-11 relative to the size of the population, which means it translates into almost everybody here knows somebody who died, who was killed, who was murdered. And I myself, uh, we had a very close family friend uh, of my children who lived on my street. And he was there at the, at the party celebrating life, uh, only to be cut down along with many of his friends. And we went to the funeral and we have mourned and we have learned about the atrocities. Um, and, I, and I think that it, and, and now, Moving beyond that, when it comes to mobilization for the army, again, it's not like the American or Canadian army. Every, everybody here has a son, a, a daughter, a nephew who has been called up. It, 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 is, it is the economy slows down. People are not on the streets. And everybody has to pitch in to try to make sure that the needs of the soldiers and the needs of the civilians are taken care of. 500,000 people have been displaced from their homes in the north and the south because thousands of missiles continue to be rained down on civilian populations. And, and so it's an, enti- it's an entire mobilization, mobilization of, the, of the country. It's not like, okay, the army, which represents 10% of the people, you don't know anybody, is going in. Here it's an entire people being enveloped on this issue. And uh, on the one hand, it's very scary as a parent and as a friend, but it's also something that the Jewish people have have come to to it with tremendous determination and optimism. You haven't said a word about your own kids, and you you had three children who were in the IDF, and the fourth is about to enter. How's that for a parent now? Well, I can tell you, it uh, you, you lose a lot of sleep, and and um, yeah, as you mentioned, I've had three who've been in, in the IDF, and one is going in in six weeks. Um, it's everybody's it's everybody's experience here, and everybody is losing sleep. One of my friends came up from the the south; they had the opportunity to visit their son, who's been mobilized ten days ago. She told me that she she cried the whole way up. You know they don't know. You don't know. They're, they're, we're expecting them to go in. We know we're going to lose lives, and it is it is incredibly scary. But everybody here is walking around with an understanding that we've waited too long. We've waited too long. We're facing one of the greatest dangers in the world. And it's not just a a danger to Israel, it's a danger to the world. Everybody knows that what starts with the Jews doesn't end with the Jews, as we saw in World War II. And we're facing, really, the the inheritors of Nazism. The Nazis were defeated, and the radical Islamists continued. And they have been fighting the Jews for a hundred years. They picked up the mantle, the, the baton was passed to them, and we, many of us, when I say we, many in the West thought that the world had become civilized and everybody's on the same page. Everybody just wants the same thing, a beautiful, uh, comfortable life and a nice, uh, nice economic situation. But there are still cultures in the world that are not at all in the 21st century and on the same page. And this is a radical Islamist culture that is you know, at, at our doorstep. 
And um, although we're all scared that we have children that are facing this problem, at the same time, we know we've made a lot of mistakes in waiting too long to deal with it. As I hear you speak, I realize, and I, I, this happens regularly when I hear somebody speak about, right now, about the crisis in, in Israel and the war with Hamas and the not really knowing what's going to come, but uh, the fear of, of what may happen and intelligent people doing their deductive reasoning because they have the skills and the education and then the knowledge. But I, and then I think about, you know, in this country we live pretty well. We, we live very well. We, you know, what's our biggest, our biggest problem? Well, my phone discharges too fast or, you know, I heard that as a complaint. I mean, I've whined about that recently. It's, there is, there's more. And there's, there, are, there, are, there are moments where you have to stand and fight. You don't have any choice. Well, I suppose you could run, but that wouldn't resolve anything because as an old coach of mine said years ago, if people know you'll run, they'll get their kicks out of chasing you. But uh, now, as you look, as, as a Canadian, born and raised Canadian, Israeli, Canadian now, Canadian-Israeli, rabbi, um, when you look at these international demonstrations where thousands upon thousands of people march in the streets, including the streets of Canada, your homeland, marching, supporting Hamas, and, and much of that support uh, is generated by uh, the university environments in this country, by university professors and students who are out there cheering on Hamas, and, uh, and, and you've seen them. What, what's your reaction to that? I'll ask you that first as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a rabbi and father and a citizen of Israel, and then I'll ask you as well as a, as a media person. Yeah, it, uh, that's a great question, Roy. Um, it's horrifying to see. Um, one couldn't imagine after 9-11 that there would be rallies around the world, and especially in American universities, celebrating al-Qaeda. One, one can't imagine that after Pearl Harbor, there would be Americans and universities and media uh, taking the side of Japan and, and, and calling for a ceasefire immediately. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's astonishing. Uh, but I want to say something positive. I do think, I do think that the, the great majority of well-meaning Canadians and Americans and most of the in the West understand the situation now. Unfortunately, it took 1,400 Jews to be massacred and several thousand to be injured for most people to understand the issue a little bit deeper than they might have in the past regarding who we are facing over here, who is in our midst, the radical Islamists. And, but I think that the majority of the people get it. There is a moment and an opportunity for moral clarity right now, and I think most good people are understanding it and understanding that, that, that around Israel there, there is a test for are you going to be on the right side of history or on the wrong side of history? And in, and in that test, um, the universities have definitely failed, especially the elite universities. I have a nephew at NYU. He's scared. They're scared to go out of their dorm rooms as Jews. Um, 
a friend of mine, his his daughter said she didn't leave her room for ten days. These are the universe. These are university campuses because everybody is protesting and rallying around genocidal radical Islamist cause that just massacred and maimed and raped. It is it is beyond understanding. Universities have failed. Black Lives Matters have failed in this test of moral clarity. The far left has failed. Some of the crazy uh, far left Democrat Congress people have failed, and much of the media has failed as well. You know, we had the 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 situation with the hospitals, the 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 rocket that fell on the hospital, and immediately the CNN and the New York Times and all the main media immediately came out and spouted Hamas's take on the situation. Hundreds were killed by, by an Israeli rocket. And they put out that word before anybody could even know what was going on. Turns out, and everybody agrees, it was an Islamic rocket that was misfired. And there was probably maybe not even 100 that were killed. But once it became an Islamic rocket, and once it wasn't a Jewish rocket that killed them, nobody cared too much. So there's a deep, deep double standard in the media and in the universities and a deep opportunity for moral clarity. Unfortunately, some of the elites are failing miserably today. And at the same time, I believe that the great majority of good Americans and Canadians are understanding that Israel has the moral high ground here and has every right to defend itself and destroy the enemy in our midst. I look at uh, your media site, your media organization here on YouTube. Um, I look at opendoormedia.org, and that's O-P-E-N-D-O-R media, media for the Jewish future. What's the Jewish future? What is it? How do you see it? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, if you go to... That's our umbrella organization, Open Door Media. And if you go on YouTube, we have a very big uh, YouTube channel. Everything on social media is unpacked, or YouTube channel unpacked, or, or Instagram, and, um, and podcasts. We do a lot to communicate about the, the Jewish and Israel situation and provide a different take on things. The Jewish future is incredibly optimistic. You know, we. Uh, there's a saying here, we, we're an eternal people. We've been around for a long time. When we sit around the Passover Seder, the Jewish people all gather around. We say in every generation, there is another enemy that comes and wants to wipe us out, which is a remarkable thing. And there's no child at the Pesach Seder, the Passover Seder, who says, well, I don't get it. Everybody loves us. We're, nobody's trying to wipe us In every generation, someone's trying to wipe us out. This generation, it's Iran and Hamas and to some degree the Palestinian Authority. And uh, we have many enemies in every generation. Before this, it was the Nazis. Before that, it was the Cossacks and the Russians. And we've been through it all. We've been through it all, and we're still here. And the, and the, the Torah, the Bible, gave, the pl- gave us the plot line. We know the story from the beginning. And the Jewish people are meant to have, have gone through all of history. We've made an incredible impact on human evol- evolution, the ethical evolution of humanity. Much of the greatest spiritual and ethical gifts have come from the Jewish people, like yep, love your neighbor 
and the, and the incredible importance of every single individual life. There's so many principles that have come from the Jews, and we know that the, the plot line has been given. We know what it is, and so we know we're going to be around. We know it's, a, it's another nuisance. It's another problem. It's going to hurt. It's going to cost lives. Right. But the Jewish future, to answer your question, is very, very beautiful. Rabbi Shor, thank you so much for the time today, and um, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. I hope uh, that we can ask you again. Oh, my pleasure. I would love to, as, as a fellow Canadian. Uh, I always enjoy speaking to to my countrymen, and I appreciate all the support from from yourself and your show, and from the beautiful Canadians out there who understand the situation and are supporting us today. So let me just read this. This is a news release. Nearly one quarter, twenty two percent of Canadians say they are completely out of money saying there's no way they can pay more for household necessities, according to a new Ipsos poll conducted on behalf of Global News. Those in Ontario, 25%, and Quebec, 25%, are most likely to say they are completely tapped out. Concerningly, women are nearly twice as likely as men to say there's no way they can pay more for household necessities. In addition to the 22% who cannot absorb any further price rises, another 32% say that when it comes to inflation, listen here now, when it comes to inflation and the rising cost of household necessities, you know, food, clothing, transportation, shelter, they would have to make major changes as to how they spend their money in order to pay for the increased costs. This was from January the 25th of 2023. Not October the 22nd, but January the 25th. 22% tapped out and the rest of the numbers and the inflation numbers. Now, the Bank of Canada argued this past week that Canadians' perception of inflation is wrong. Canadians' perception of inflation is wrong. To which I responded in, on Twitter, or X, Bank of Canada states Canadians' perception of inflation is wrong. My perception was even though cannabis is legal, it's not consumed at the BOC during working hours. How are you, Dr. Cam? Hi, Roy. Um, getting more and more angry as you quote some of those things from the Bank of Canada, because not only are what what they're saying is not just insignificant, but it's incorrect when they say things like people's when they say things like people's uh, perceptions of price increases and inflation are wrong. How can they be wrong? How can perceptions be wrong? People have perceptions. They're not wrong. They're correct by definition. Whether they match their empirical data is frankly ridiculous, right? The disconnect is so well earned for these hardworking Canadian families, Roy, because what's going up? Food, gas, rent, housing, interest, or in other words, all of the things that people need. So it's the items that people have no choice to buy that have gone up the highest. So what on God's green earth does the bank expect people to say? Do they expect people to say, well, because things are coming down super slowly, they should adjust their expectations super slowly. This is the disconnect 
why people hate politicians and government bureaucracy, because it's so disconnected with actual people in society, Roy. I don't know where to begin. You know, uh, Professor Kim, I was watching an interview on an American channel a couple of days ago, and uh, there was a highfalutin politician being asked about economic issues and the problems in Congress. Then, you know, the potential that the U.S. government may not be able to come to an agreement on funding itself. And he went on, blatherdy, 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 and, um, you know, things are not as bad as you think. Everything's good. We'll be fine. And I'm looking at the car he's sitting in. So they had a camera in the car. I don't know how they managed this, but he was being interviewed in a car, and he was on the phone. And I thought, that's a Maybach. That's not even a Mercedes 500. That's a Maybach. This dude is driving around in a quarter million dollar car telling Americans things are fine. You know, they're fine for you, buddy, but they're not so fine for the person who's sitting at home saying, I don't know where the next meal is going to come from. They're not so fine for the person who, who emailed me in, in, in the last hour and said that she and her husband had negotiated their, 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 um, uh, their credit line down uh, 3%. And then they knew that it was going to be a very temporary fix. It saves them 130 a month. But they know it's going back up again. But they were just trying to survive. And this dude's sitting, I swear, he was sitting in a Maybach giving a lecture. Deplorable. It's deplorable because, you know, you say, who are these people? These are the people, Roy. 80% of mortgages in Canada have not been renegotiated at new rates. Those are the people. How about the efforts that the government has had to increase disposable income, which are none? Those are the people. And so you have people saying, and they're right, I may need another job just to pay my present bills. That's a great idea in theory, only one problem. Now, as we see inflation working through the labor market and reductions in productivity, and every single macro indicator we see flat, there's gonna be less jobs not more jobs. These are the people, Roy, hardworking people that want luxuries, extreme luxuries, not a Maybach, Roy, a house, an apartment, clothes, food. These are not luxuries, but they become luxuries under this government. These are the people now who are struggling. They don't want vacations, Roy. They want to put food on the table and be able to pay their rent or their mortgage. And increasingly, they cannot. And feed their kids and clothe their kids and take care of their dogs. Um, so what's going to happen? What's your call next week? What's going to happen? Is the interest rate going up again? I actually don't think it's going to. I think it was. Now, I have no insight into this. I didn't tap anybody's shoulder at the bank. But I actually think the geopolitical situation in the world is going to play into this. I think that a lot of central banks in a lot of industrialized nations will not want to rock the boat right now. Um, I think that the bank would like to raise interest rates. I think they would. I think they've come out. I think they've been as transparent as possible to say we would like to raise rates one more time to get down to some um, number, probably 2%, maybe even 1.8% as an inflation rate. But I have a feeling now with the instability in the political situation in the world that not just the Bank of Canada, but many banks of fill in the name here, Roy, are going to hold the line until the world just looks a little bit more stable. You're a macroeconomics professor. So from the macroeconomics picture, as you look at what's happening in, in Israel, and we just spoke with the Lieutenant Colonel, Jonathan 
Conricas from the IDF made it very clear what their objective is, what they're going to do. So how does this play out as far as macroeconomists are concerned? When you look at what's happening right now, it's, it's, it's fairly concentrated. But if it spreads out, becomes a regional conflict. If it spreads out and the Americans become involved, and uh, the lieutenant colonel told us, the Americans don't have those carrier task forces um, off the coast of Israel for show. They're there saying, you want to test us? Try it. And you'll, you'll regret it. So what does that do to macroeconomics, to global economics? What does that do to it? Anything? There's really, there's really yeah, there's really two ways to look at this. Um, the first one is that, for better or for worse, we are not a huge trading partner with Israel, nor are we massive trading partners with the Middle East, if you remove fuel. So I don't think you're going to have to worry about there being massive price increases in a massive number of goods and services, Roy. But of course, on the horizon is what's going to happen to the price of fuel. And that, I think, is the real X factor to Canada, which is far away from the Middle East. But the real X factor for our country is what are we going to have to pay for fuel if things don't cool down in the Middle East. But as a general rule, and I'm no expert in development economics, but macroeconomics is pretty uh, pretty simple on what I'm about to say, which is uncertainty is never good. Economic uncertainty, political uncertainty, never really does much for anybody. Um, it provides just more and more layers of uncertainty. So the reality is, is that our economy is fragile today as it is for reasons that we've already discussed. And, and geopolitical uncertainty, be it the Middle East or anywhere else, doesn't make that any better. But in the short run, I would say with the exception, and this is strictly just talking about prices. I'm not talking about lives lost or anything. I want to be clear. In terms of prices that we are going to pay at cash registers outside of fuel, I don't see it being in the short run a real concern, Roy. Okay, so it wouldn't then be a situation where dominoes drop around the world and we all fall with it. Like, you know, when we had a, I suppose we still do have a supply chain issue, but when it was the main talking point, that a lot more things would have to go wrong before that became the case. A, a lot more things. And that's the point. That's why I prefaced my comments with the short run. The short run, we're looking at the price of fuel. Yeah. If you want to go on into the long run, well, then you have then we've got to start going into the data and seeing, OK, exactly what is and what percentages do we import from the Middle East and how are those things going to be affected? Because, of course, they're undoubtedly going to be um, affected. But compared to fuel, those things are what we call second order small. But you know what? The next time we speak, I'll dig up that data for you and let you know what those goods are. So when we started, thank you, when we started, I mentioned the Ipsos poll that was done for Global News on the 25th, or was released on the 25th of January, where 22% of Canadians said they're flat, flat broke. Flat, that's one out of five. More than one out of five, flat broke. So if I look at the MNP, LLP uh, survey, their quarterly survey, Consumer Debt Index, Canadians' debt outlook has reached the most pessimistic point since tracking began five years ago. Reflecting on their current debt situation compared to one year ago, more Canadians rate their current situation as much worse 
uh, and more say their debt situation has worsened compared to five years ago. When asked to look into the future, more believe their debt situation will be worse a year from now. Five years from now, more believe it'll be even worse, and fewer feel it's going to, fewer still feel it's going to improve. Does, does this become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Can it? It is a self-fulfilling prophecy, but the problem is, Roy, is there's only one way to break the prophecy, and that is to give people a port in the storm. And right now, our government, our federal government, hasn't given anybody any port in any storm. If you add up the efforts of the Bank of Canada and the government of Canada, which, by the way, are supposed to be separated at arm's length, but that arm would be pretty short right now, they're not really giving Canadians much to hold on to. They're not giving Canadians any real perception that in a year from now, their disposable income is going to go up. And why is that? Why do Canadians feel so down? Well, if you take the sort of the, the obvious, which is there's no money for most of these families to do anything more than just survive, and, and even that's becoming harder and harder. What are they looking at? They're looking at things like food and gas and rent and housing and interest going up and up and up. And you can't have things double and then come down 10% and go, look, we're doing our jobs. That's, you know, people aren't stupid. Canadians aren't stupid. And the Bank of Canada can't sell that anymore. So to me, until somebody stands up and says, we have to increase disposable income by reducing taxes, reducing carbon taxes, reducing excise taxes, and actually putting money back into people's wallets, you know, what do you expect people to think? What would what would you hang on to at that point? You know, the um, it, it's fantasy. It's fantasy believe, to believe the economy for people on a micro household level is going to get better until they see some money in their wallet and their government and their Bank of Canada has done nothing to lead them to that belief. So let's stay with politics for just a moment. I'd like your thoughts on this. Conservative Party leader Pierre Polyev is urging the finance minister, Christian Freeland, to reject the proposed RBC takeover of HSBC Canada. To a lot of people, that's just that's just alphabet soup, and it's way bigger than we can understand, one bank buying another one. Hell, I can't get into that because I'm trying to put food on the table. But how do you interpret this situation? Is Mr. Polyev correct? Is he incorrect? What are the what are the upsides? What are the downsides of such a merger? You know, it's funny. Uh, I don't want to come out of the proverbial closet, but Mr. Polyev is starting to make an awful lot of sense to this observer. Um, the reality is Royal Bank, they have a proposal, right? $13.5 billion to take over HSBC, right? Is it a good idea? Well, let me just throw one more statistic at you, Roy and Canada. The six biggest banks in our country control 90% of all mortgages in Canada. So how can it be a great idea to reduce the number of banks in our country and increase that type of concentration, right? All you have to do, if you don't want to get into fancy language, three words, loss of competition. You want to know what happens in this country when we lose competition? It's met with higher costs across the board, higher job losses across the board. The Competition Bureau, who, by the way, said this was a good idea about a year ago, are full of it. They have to be. I don't know what they are talking about. Their only argument, their only thing they can stand on, Roy, is to say, well, maybe international competitive, international competitiveness goes up if our banks get bigger because they become bigger player on the world market. There's some evidence to that. But, you know, let's go back to what we've been talking about. Common folk, hardworking people. They don't give a damn about that. 
They give a damn about having more options with respect to their mortgage, more options with respect to their car loan. And this is nothing more than giving people less options. Why on God's green earth right now, when the economy is tanking, do you want to give people less options, which never results in anything more than higher prices? Roy, Mr. Polyev is right. Stop this. It is the wrong policy, wrong time, wrong argument, full stop. You know, Professor Cam, you mentioned uh, in your last uh, explanation, loss of competition. And I will always be able to very quickly point to a perfect example of what happens when there's loss of competition. And it happens at so many street corners for, you know, large street corners in, in Canada, where there used to be a gas station on corner one, a gas station on corner two, another one on three, and another on corner four. And a couple of them were independent, and the other two might have been owned by oil companies. And then over a relatively short period of time, the independents couldn't withstand the pressure, and they disappeared. And so did the competition for the price of gasoline. The, the independent couldn't undersell the, uh, the, the major anymore, and they, they disappeared. And so... We drive down the street. I mean, I looked at that this this morning. I was driving down the road, and I thought, okay, so buck fifty four point nine, same intersection, buck fifty four point nine, buck fifty four point nine, a buck fifty four point nine. I'm sure that's just coincidental. You know what? And what makes me sad is that companies lie. Uh, you have big companies, and I, I maybe I probably shouldn't say their names, but let's just say the telecommunications industry. Uh, and people that provide uh, cell phone service. You know, they're very quick to say, well, what we have here are very strong companies with very strong networks that rarely go down. Sure, we also have the highest telecommunication costs in the world. The world. And and it's it just, it's befuddling to me how they come out and make these claims about their stability and their this and their that. Uh, show me an instance where competition has resulted in something bad, Roy. Competition is choice. Competition pushes the supply curve out. Competition brings down price. It has. It, it, it's just. It's really. It's common sense. And I know that Mr. Polyev got good mileage last week out of speaking about common sense. But sometimes there is common sense. We don't need less companies in Canada. We're small. We're a pretty small economy. But we're also economies that are built on a lot of monopolies or what's called duopolies, which is when you have two okay. major players in the market. If you want to bring down prices, Roy, more competition compared to less. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.